Well, good morning, everyone. I am not Pastor Evan. I am not Pastor Kyle. I am Pastor Tim. And um, if you've been around for a while, perhaps you've seen my wife Susan and me. Susan is not here. She's actually on a pastor's wives retreat today. Uh, but um, she, she and I have been a part of Liberty since September, and uh, we have really enjoyed getting to know you all here and becoming more and more a part of the church, and uh, it is great to be able to bring God's word to you today. So, sorry, my iPad does not recognize my face. There we go. Um, so, it is uh, interesting that we would be here talking about Palm Sunday. Uh, the, did anyone hear any mention of palms in the, the story that was just read? No, no. Actually, this is just a, you know, a free uh, token that you get for coming today. Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who does not mention that the people who welcomed Jesus uh, on his way to Jerusalem cut down palms. So uh, it was kind of a curious omission uh, for Luke, but uh, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday nonetheless. That being said, Palm Sunday is one of those iconic uh, accounts from Scripture. Uh, so we remember Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem, being loudly acclaimed as king by his disciples. And you might have taken notice that some of the worship songs that we sang today had a very specific focus on Jesus as king. And what makes Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem unique is that we see displayed an aspect of his personhood that we haven't seen before. And this is what I mean. As we've looked at the life of Jesus and Luke's gospel over the last three-plus months, we've seen other aspects of who he is. We've seen his humanity in the ways in which he identifies with us as one of us. And, and Jesus is a flesh-and-blood human being, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, made like his brothers and sisters in every way. Jesus has a physical body. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He has emotions. He has friends, and he has enemies. And Jesus is still alive, uh, because one week from today, we celebrate uh, the fact that uh, death cannot hold Jesus. Uh, and to quote Tim Keller, a human being is now in complete control of the universe. That, that is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. In addition, when we talk about Jesus' humanity, he, he came in the flesh, and, and in doing that, he identifies with us. But he also identifies with those rejected by society, the sinners, the tax collectors, the lepers, the poor, and the outcast. He loves those who have been canceled by everyone else. And this is something that continually gets him in trouble as we, as we look at the story of his ministry throughout the Gospels. Uh, people, particularly the kind of the religious elite in Jesus' time are criticizing him because um, he's hanging out with people who they think don't make the cut for God. So we've seen his humanity, but we've also seen Jesus' godly power and authority on display in the ways in which he healed the sick, in the ways in which he's driven out demons, he's raised the dead, and he's exercised authority over the natural world. 
in an account that didn't make it into the preaching series this time, that being the account of something called the Transfiguration, uh, in Luke 9, we see the divinity of Jesus, another aspect of, of who he is. Uh, and uh, just very quickly, the, the apostles Peter, James, and John had a literal mountaintop experience when they saw Jesus transfigured. And that is, in an instant, his appearance changed from the man that they knew into someone who was so radiant that they were amazed. But what makes today's account so unique is that for the first time, we see Jesus' kingliness or his royal identity on display. The fact is, Jesus is not only a king, he is the king. Four times in Scripture, Jesus is called the King of Kings, meaning that he is the ultimate king. And yet, if we're really honest, we, like the people outside of Jerusalem who acclaimed Jesus as king on Palm Sunday, we really don't want the kind of king that Jesus is to rule over us. But Jesus is exactly the kind of king that we need. And so, it's very simple. We'll look at this morning's passage using two points. The first is that Jesus is not the king that we want, but Jesus is the king that we need. So, why do I say that Jesus is not the king that we want? It, it's true. If you and I are the least bit intellectually honest with ourselves, we know it's true. And to know it's true, all you have to do is look at the average three-year-old. So anyone here, have you had experience with three-year-olds? Have you ever been around a three-year-old? Have you ever been a three-year-old? Okay, so you, you have some, uh, some experience. Three-year-olds have uh, kind of a unique uh, ability to reveal what's going on inside of our hearts as adults and, and older children because they rebel against the kings and queens in their lives, and those are their parents. They, they cry and they kick and they scream when they don't get their own way. They can be deceptive and mean-spirited and just plain spiteful. They don't want to eat the food that you give them. They don't want to wear the clothes that you lay out for them. They don't want to go to bed when you tell them. And for those of you who have children younger uh, than three, uh, I'm sorry, this is just the way it is. So, so they rebel, but, but when you tell them something like, you can have some candy, it's, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Daddy. Or when you say, you can have some screen time, it's, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Daddy. Or we're going on a play date, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Daddy. You see, when the kid gets what he or she wants, they're more than happy to thank and honor the gift giver. But when they're denied what they want, it, it's total depravity on two legs. Why do kids react this way to authority? Well, it's their instinct. The Bible tells us that sin is a condition that we're born into, and it's a condition which we never outgrow. One of the chief ways in which sin works its way out is that we don't want anyone else to have authority over us. We want, we want to be the bosses of ourselves. We only want to follow someone else's rules if we think it's going to give us what we want. Just I mean, to, to think of it in another way, look at the people whom we elect to serve in political office. We don't generally elect the people who promise us things that we don't value or, or things that we don't think are important for our flourishing. We elect the people who give us what we want. There's, you know, going back 
like to ancient history, 100 years ago. Was anyone around 100 years ago? Neither was I. But, but I've heard this is true, that um, there was a presidential candidate back in, I think it was 1920 or 24, who promised a chicken in every pot for Americans who voted for him. Um, and I don't remember who that was because I wasn't around. But, but you know, th there was an attempt to get votes from people because he was promising something that people wanted. They, they wanted that security. But, you know, enough, enough about human kings. Let's go back to Jesus. He, he really is the king. But just like those petulant three-year-olds, we don't want to live under his authority because it sometimes interferes with our own authority and the fulfillment of our own desires. The, the people outside of Jerusalem in today's passage, if we are really honest, uh, they're ready for Jesus to be their king so long as he'll only, uh, so long rather, as he'll give them what they want. Specifically, uh, they probably wanted him to march into Jerusalem and drive out the Romans who have occupied the land for decades. And, and it wasn't just the Romans, the, the Jews had been under uh, outside oppression for centuries. Ever since they were carried off into exile, they have been controlled by other rulers. So they want Jesus to be a king who will free them from the oppression of an occupation force and restore power and greatness to their land. They want Jesus to be the one who comes in as Messiah and restores Israel to the place it was a thousand years earlier under the reign of King David when the kingdom of Israel was united and when it was at its greatest power. And Jesus well, he's given some signs that that's exactly what he's about to do. First of all, about a week or two prior to Palm Sunday, John's Gospel tells us that Jesus went to Bethany. It's one of the towns that was mentioned in, in today's reading. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. You, you have probably heard stories about Lazarus and his two cities, uh, two sisters, rather, Mary and Martha. Um, uh, this, this is something that happened just a few miles from Jerusalem, and it happened very, very recently. And so there were people in that crowd outside of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday who had seen this miraculous thing happen. And who can raise someone from the dead except someone on whom God's hand of power rests? John also tells us, uh, that the reason why the crowd went out to meet him at Jerusalem was that they heard that he had done this sign of raising Lazarus. And second, uh, we see this in Luke 18, verses 35 and following. Um, just before the passage that we, we heard today, on his way uh, to Bethany and Beth, uh, Bethphage, Jesus went through Jericho, uh, another town relatively close to to Jerusalem, where he healed a blind man. And the blind man calls out to Jesus using a very unusual title. It's not been a title that has been ever applied to Jesus publicly before. That's right. The title is Son of David. And Son of David is something that the, the Jews of Jesus' time would have been listening, be, uh, listening for because that is a, uh, a marker of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be the son of David. He's going to be a king um, in the line of David. 
over his people Israel. And third, uh, we heard this preached about a couple weeks ago, while in Jericho, Jesus forgives the sin of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and, and Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, the title Son of Man is actually a title that refers to the coming Messiah, and for the Jews of Jesus' time, this would have uh, uh, been another key that Jesus was the one that they were waiting for. Uh, the, the Jews of Jesus' time would have been familiar with it from the prophecy of Daniel in, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Uh, and it says this, uh, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus has dropped some pretty big hints, uh, no pun intended, some really big Easter eggs, that he is the Messiah and that his rule is about to begin. And then there are some very particular instructions in today's passage about riding a donkey into Jerusalem. That's another dead giveaway that those who are paying attention uh, to Jesus is that he is the coming king. In giving these instructions for, for his disciples to procure a donkey's colt on which he is to ride, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Uh, Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet who was talking about the coming Messiah, and he said this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He's, he's referring to, uh, to the Jews. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and humble. Uh, I'm sorry, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus has checked all the boxes. He, he has all the credentials. He has all the right titles. He's demonstrated through his miraculous deeds that he has the power of God at his disposal. This must be the king. And so the people put their cloaks on the colt and laid them on the ground in front of the donkey. And, and why did they do that? They did that because that's a sign of submission and obedience. Perhaps you're, you're familiar with the image of the elders throwing down their crowns before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4 uh, as a sign of worship and submission to God's authority. Why do they do that? Well, God is the one who gave them the crowns as, as the sign of their authority in the first place, and they're saying, Lord, I take this crown off and I put it before you because you are the ultimate authority. And, and so the people who acclaimed Jesus as king on Palm Sunday didn't have crowns, but they took the only thing that they owned of any value, and that was their cloaks. And they put them on the, on the colt for Jesus to sit on, and they put them on the ground as uh, a sign of their submission and obedience to the king. And then, what about the palms? You know, the, the palms that Luke doesn't mention. Uh, people cut them down from nearby trees and lay them as a royal carpet, or a red carpet for Jesus to ride on as he comes into Jerusalem and takes his rightful throne of authority. So let's take two steps back and process all these events for a moment. There's, there's a lot going on here. So after three years of publicly avoiding the public affirmation of his kingship, and, and you might remember that there were several times when Jesus uh, removed himself from a crowd because he 
knew that they were going to make him king by force. There were several times Jesus told people whom he had healed not to tell other people what, what he had done because he didn't want to draw attention to himself at that point. Now he seems ready to actively embrace public affirmation and, and his kingship. And Jesus seems to be poised to enter Jerusalem to unseat the, the corrupt and ungodly King Herod and to oust the Roman military from the stranglehold that they have on Israel. But Jesus, Jesus, rather, isn't coming as a military victor with an army to unseat the powers that be. He's coming, as the prophet Zephaniah puts it, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus comes into Jerusalem not in a tank with armor and guns. He rides into Jerusalem in the first century equivalent of a 2004 Prius. And I, I don't say that to, to belittle what Jesus did or, or to impugn his authority in any way, but, but just think about it. Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem on a baby donkey. That, that's not the symbol of power and authority that you would have expected someone to, uh, to demonstrate. The fact is that the focus of Jesus' kingly reign at this point in history is that he's about to suffer and die. And that's because his kingdom is not one focused on political power or military might. Jesus is the only righteous man on the face of the earth. He is the king of all creation. And the exercise of his power at this point in redemptive history is to suffer and to die on behalf of his people. A suffering servant, as the prophet Isaiah called him. He didn't come as a military or political ruler bent on displacing the powers that be. The questions come over and over during the three years of Jesus' ministry. Is now the time you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel to the way it used to be, Jesus? Are you going to give us back the promises uh, and the signs of the covenant of God, Jesus? But Jesus' kingdom isn't the kingdom of Israel. It's the kingdom of God. And those two things are very different. And this isn't what the people of Jesus' time wanted. The truth is that the crowds who heralded Jesus as king on Palm Sunday would all abandon him by Thursday because they saw that he wasn't giving them what they wanted. They wanted freedom from their political oppressors. But Jesus wanted to give them freedom from their spiritual oppressor, their own sin natures and the powers of death and the devil. They thought that their biggest problem was a political system gone wrong, but Jesus came to deliver them from an infinitely greater threat, the threat of slavery to their own lusts and passions. There's a pastor named Tim Keller who says it this way, Jesus didn't come to defeat the Romans because that wasn't the biggest threat that his people faced. Their biggest threat was their own sin and death. And if we're honest with ourselves, we need to admit that we really don't want the kind of rule that Jesus brings either. We want simple, worldly solutions to complex spiritual problems, like the right political party in power uh, of the government, or, or the right laws to govern moral behavior, or right judicial decisions from the bench, or the right curriculum in our schools, or the right use of civil authority to bring about social and moral change. And I'm not saying that those things are unimportant, but they're not ultimate. 
And Jesus is the ultimate eternal king who reigns in heaven now, but who will return to completely assume his reign over all things one day. And so the question we all need to consider is, is Jesus the king that we want? Because one of the things that Palm Sunday reminds us of is that Jesus is coming again soon. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king on a colt nearly 2,000 years ago. But Jesus, someday soon, maybe sooner than we think, is going to return as king of the cosmos on a cloud. And this time between his ascension to heaven and his return to earth is a time when he means to prepare us to enjoy his reign forever. It's one of the reasons that Jesus established his church 2,000 years ago. Think about it. What were Jesus' last instructions to his disciples before he ascended to heaven? It's often called the Great Commission. It's found in in Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our, Our lives as Christians are meant to be lives not focused on ourselves, but rather focused on the inner transformation that happens as we help each other grow into the men and women who we were created to be, men and women who act more like Jesus. There's a seminary professor named Edmund Clowney who says this about the inward ministry of the church. He says that that ministry is to know the Lord and to do the Lord's will and to be like the Lord. That's what we're supposed to be doing at Liberty Northeast. This is what this in-between time we live in is all about, making us into citizens who love Jesus and love being a part of his kingdom. And that's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. Because I ask you again, is Jesus the king that you want? Jesus is a king who gets inside of you and rearranges everything. Or are you more interested in the stuff that Jesus can give you. Well, Jesus may not be the king that we want, but he is the king that we need. Why is that? Look at how the account of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem ends. Let me reread the last few verses of Luke 19, uh, starting in verse 37. And it says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think what's happening here, and I think what Jesus is saying here, is that this moment of Jesus' kingship being publicly celebrated is so momentous. It is so revolutionary. This is one of those uh, touch points in the redemptive historical timeline that creation itself would need to break out in song if the people remain silent. This is something so big that there has to be a response. There has to be cries of glory. 
because Jesus is identified as king. If that sounds strange, here's the way the prophet Isaiah explains creation's response to the kingdom of of the Lord. This is in Isaiah 55, verse 12. He says, referring to the coming king, he says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The coming of the king is so momentous that all creation will respond to him just that way when he returns. We've never seen anything like it. And if all creation is attuned to, the res- uh, to respond rather to the Lord's reign, how much more readily should we respond with joy and thanksgiving? We who have voices, we who have wills, we who have minds, we who have been given the knowledge of the Lord, who have been given His Spirit. How much more should we respond with joy and thanksgiving? It's how we were designed to receive Jesus and to love Him as our King and our brother. So that's one reason we need Jesus. We, we were made to worship Him. But here's another. Uh, look, look at... Uh, Back at verse 35 in today's passage, does Jesus ride in his coronation parade on a war horse or in a chariot? No, he rides on a baby donkey like we talked about before. And what does that show? It shows that he's gentle. And he's not just gentle with the Romans, he's gentle in ways, in the ways that he deals with us. And and don't confuse here gentleness and weakness. Gentleness comes out of strength. Here's something else Isaiah says about King Jesus. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And there, Isaiah is talking about us. We are, we are the bruised reed. We're, we're the wick that's about to go out. And so Jesus is our king, but he doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't intimidate us into obedience. He doesn't act the way other kings do. What does he do differently? He serves us. And he serves us gently and compassionately. If we're struggling, Jesus doesn't guilt us or shame us into doing anything. Instead, he showers us with his love and grace. Psalm 103 says that he loves us with the compassion that a good father has for a wayward child. But the main reason Jesus is the king that you and I need isn't spelled out explicitly in this morning's text. It's because Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew that roughly 96 hours after the events of Palm Sunday, none of the people who acclaimed him as king would stand with him. Even his closest friends would walk away. Well, they wouldn't walk away. They ran away. He would be completely alone. He knew that he would suffer and die at the hands of the very ones the people wanted him to overthrow. The reason he willingly died was that he knew he was doing it to take the place of all those who trust in him. You see, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And since sin is an offense against God's law, it requires A big price. It requires the shedding of blood in order for God to forgive the offense. In other words, it requires the death of the sinner 
or the death of a substitute. Jesus is the king that you and I need because he is the substitute who took our place on the cross. What king would or or even could do that for his people? Only the most righteous king that there is, the king who loves us, uh, who who, uh, loves us so much that he laid down his very life for his subjects and paid the debt that they owed. So today is Palm Sunday. If Jesus already is your king, then welcome him into your heart afresh today with thanksgiving, with gratitude, with joy. And and submit joyfully to his plan to transform you into one ready to spend all eternity with him. But perhaps you've never welcomed Jesus into your heart or bowed to him as king. Or perhaps you you have welcomed Jesus in, but you've, you've strayed from him. Maybe you feel very distant from him today. This Palm Sunday... Pray for the grace to open the gates of your heart to him, just like the gates of Jerusalem, that he might reign in your heart as the good, the loving, and the faithful king that he is. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, um, we, we confess that we do not welcome you as the king and ruler of our hearts. But Lord, This is something that you want us to do, and it's something that we need to do. And so, Lord, we pray for the grace to continually submit ourselves to the reign of Jesus. Lord, give us us a sense of gratitude. Give us a sense of thanksgiving. Give us a sense of joy in knowing that Jesus is the one who loves us and serves us perfectly, and that he is not only the one whom we need, he is the one who has come to us and done all of this for us because he loves us. All this we ask in his precious name. Amen.